to the Psych Central podcast, where each episode features guest experts discussing psychology and mental health in everyday, plain language. Here's your host, Gabe Howard. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of the Psych Central podcast. We are here again with Dr. John Grohall, the founder and editor-in-chief of PsychCentral.com. John, welcome to the show. Always great to be here, Gabe. It's always great to have you. And this week, we want to talk about something that has been in the news a lot, uh, mass shootings. And specifically, we want to talk about, well, frankly, the way that the media reports on mental illness and mass shootings. It's a common issue whenever we have reporting done on mental illness in the mainstream media. It's not always well connected to the kinds of uh, conclusions that they come to. And it's pretty frustrating as both someone who has studied this issue for a very long time and has been writing about it for for over a decade. I, I just find it very frustrating to continue to read the same kind of misperceptions being repeated over and over again. One of the biggest things that gets reported after every single mass shooting is what is the mental health status of the shooter? And this comes out before sometimes we even know the name of the shooter. People are already talking about, well, it must be mental illness. It has to be mental illness. That person has to be mentally ill. And uh, I imagine that you have some stuff to say about that. Sure. I think it's it's where our minds automatically go to. It's, It's a very natural sort of thing to want to do to understand the motive, to understand how could someone do this? But then again, I ask myself, how could a human being murder another human being on a one-to-one scale? So for me, it's always been a question of murder is the line that you cross, I think, in criminal activity, not how many people you murder. Just because someone only murders one other person, we're supposed to say, oh, well, that's understandable. You know, it was a lover's quarrel or something like that, or a drug deal gone bad, and we have an instant understanding. But do we, I mean, do most normal people perfectly okay and, and feel comfortable with taking another human being's life? I don't think so. I, I think that's way outside the norm of most people's living. And I think that's what gets lost in this conversation as, as well as many other things. Let's touch on that for a moment. Thinking purely as a doctor, as as a psychologist, John, not as a journalist, not who's somebody that writes about psychology and mental illness, is the definition of mental illness, is it diagnostic criteria to do something that nobody else has done means you're mentally ill. So the first person to climb Mount Everest, because nobody else has done it, that person must be mentally ill because it's unusual. Isn't that kind of what we're saying when we say, if you murder somebody, you therefore must be mentally ill? Yeah, I think it's a slippery sl- slope because I think it's a far cry with being diagnosed with a actual mental illness by a mental health professional versus someone who has mental health issues where most of the population could fall into the latter category. Most people have had mental health issues throughout their lives. They they deal with trauma, they deal with grief, they deal with emotionality and upset and loss. These are common things that people grapple with. And that's where the sloppiness in the reporting comes from uh, in the first part is that they don't differentiate between these two very important categories, mental illness 
and mental health or psychological issues. It's a really good point, and I want to touch on that for for just a moment. Even in mental health advocacy, we have this tendency to say this phrase, well, he has mental health. Instead of what we mean is that that person has bipolar disorder, schizophrenia, or psychosis, or severe and persistent mental illness, we've sort of made mental health and mental illness mean exactly the same thing. So there's already that confusion that anybody, literally anybody, can have a mental health issue. For example, grief, which we've covered on this show before. Grief is a mental health issue, but it's not severe and persistent mental illness. Do you think that the media does any job of separating those two things out, or do we just see all mental health, all mental illness as exactly the same, no matter what the symptoms? So I categorize mental health in the same way that we look at physical health. And when you talk about mental health, it's actually a good thing. We all have mental health. We all have physical health. When people confabulate mental health with mental illness, it's a serious problem. You can have mental health issues, which I think is something different, but every human being on this planet has mental health, just like every human being has physical health. And we can talk about things that you can do to improve your mental health, even if you don't have a mental illness diagnosis. And yes, I think that's an important point that often gets lost in the conversation, that mental health is something that everyone has. Mental illness is something that one in five Americans have. It's like physical health. People have good physical health. It's the physical illness that is the issue. And again, when we talk about the reporting of it, I think that the average person listening to this believes that any mental health can only exist on the negative. This this really does boil down to there's not a lot of understanding of mental health versus mental illness in our society, and that is reflected in the reporting and adds further confusion. I think it is a confusion point. But I don't think it's the primary confusion point. I don't think it's the reason that people are misreporting on the connection between mental illness and violence. Which begs the question, why do you think they're doing it? I think they're doing it because they have not looked very hard at the research and the reports that have come out from respected bodies that have done deep dives on the research to understand what do we actually know about mass shooters? What kind of characteristics do they have? And it's easy to go to the sloppy, easy reporting such as Mother Jones mass shootings database But Mother Jones is not a research institute. While it's usually a good source of journalism, this particular data point that they're trying to put together does a really poor job in differentiating what different mass shooting perpetrators have as primary characteristics. They they confabulate, again, mental health issues with mental illness. And do you think that's just done because we want the quick and easy answer? Does society just want to say, oh, that's mental illness. So as long as I avoid people who have mental illness, I will be safe from violence. Or do you think it's deeper than that? It's an easy, low-hanging scapegoat. It's always easier to have an outgroup of people where they're a minority of the population and to point to them and say, hey, this is the this is the cause of all of our problems, and then work on ways to legislate that small group of people. And that legislation obviously would not make much of a difference if you're talking about mass shootings. 
Well, not only would it not make much of a difference if you're talking about mass shootings, but it would make all the difference to people like me, people who live with bipolar disorder, that would be impacted by those laws. So not only are we not solving the problem, which is mass shootings, but we're making it harder for people with severe and persistent mental illness to seek treatment. Because last time I checked, we're not seeing an uptick in spending on mental health issues. We're just seeing... It's your fault. And then the, the story kind of drops off there. You're primarily seeing a lot of rhetoric and a lot of promises that are easy to make, but very hard to follow through on. When it comes to mental health spending in America, we've seen a decline over the past two decades that shows no sign of letting up. And not to put too fine a point on it, but it's really, really important not to gloss over that some people are talking about taking away a constitutional right from one in five Americans, the right to bear arms, the Second Amendment. And I think that's that's a huge problem. I don't want anyone's constitutional rights being taken away for a medical or mental illness diagnosis. I want to kind of ask a devil's advocate question on that for a moment. You know, John, we we live in the real world and we don't want somebody who is uh, suffering from psychosis. They don't know their own name. They don't know who the people around them are. They think that everybody is an enemy combatant. They're, for lack of a better phrase, they're out of their mind. We don't want that person to have an assault rifle. We don't, right? Certainly. And there's a criteria that you can use. And we call that if you're a, a danger to yourself or others. And we, we already use that criteria day in and day out today to help differentiate whether people uh, need to have their weapons taken away from them. They're called red flag laws and they're growing in popularity across the states. But that alone will not solve the problem of mass shootings because, again, most mass shootings are not being conducted by people with mental illness. We'll be right back after this message from our sponsor. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp.com. Secure, convenient, and affordable online counseling. All counselors are licensed, accredited professionals. Anything you share is confidential. Schedule secure video or phone sessions, plus chat and text with your therapist whenever you feel it's needed. A month of online therapy often costs less than a single traditional face-to-face -face session. Go to BetterHelp.com forward slash Psych Central and experience seven days of free therapy to see if online counseling is right for you. BetterHelp.com forward slash Psych Central. And we're back speaking with Dr. John Grohal. So what would solve the problem of mass shootings? Well, good that you asked that question because uh, the National Council, which is a large organization that focuses on behavioral health, the profession, the administration of behavioral health in the United States, put together a research panel to actually look at this issue. And they released their findings in August of 2019. And they found that perpetrators share certain characteristics. And those characteristics cut across demographic, sociological, cultural, and occupational groups. The characteristics that really identify mass shooters are that they are most often males, most often expressing hopelessness or harboring grievances that are frequently related to work, school, finances, or interpersonal relationships. They feel victimized and they sympathize with others who they perceive to be similarly mistreated. That's why the internet plays such an important role in this harboring and encouraging mass shooters. They have a general indifference to life and they don't mind dying by suicide. So 
those are the primary characteristics that differentiate a mass shooter from everyone else. And you'll notice that mental illness diagnosis is not in there because it is not a strong characteristic or indicator that was shared by most mass shooters. This raises an interesting question, though. Again, as a mental health professional, John, somebody who doesn't mind dying by suicide is not exactly mentally well, right? Um, if they're suffering from psychological distress, that's something different than mental illness. And you can't forget the fact that there's no mental illness necessarily diagnosed. Just because someone is suicidal doesn't mean that they qualify for a diagnosis of a mental illness. It may seem like they should, and in many cases they would. Suicide in and of itself is not usually the, the key indicator of qualifying for a diagnosis. And there are examples throughout history of people who have been suicidal or have completed the act of suicide who were not mentally ill. You know, war times, criminals, people with their backs against the wall. This doesn't mean that they have, you know, bipolar, schizophrenia, major depression, or psychosis. It just means that they have some strong feeling to do something. Biggest example that I can think of are like kamikaze pilots. They didn't go and round up a bunch of mentally ill people. They found people who believed in the cause so much they were willing to die for it. And that's not mental illness, correct? Correct. That's very true. There are other predictors and characteristics that are more important to focus on than mental illness. And reports like the one from the U.S. Secret Service's National Threat Assessment Center does a really deep dive and really good analysis of mass shootings that have been perpetrated in the United States. And a grievance is really a key indicator. Someone who carries a heavy grievance for work-related things, school, finances, or interpersonal relationship, that's a much stronger indicator than anything like mental illness. And we can see how this plays out on a much smaller level. Human resources people have all kinds of ideas on how to reduce, not violence, but outbursts or conflicts or problems when it comes to, for example, laying people off or firing people uh, or even discipline. I think a lot of people have heard that human resources or supervisors will let people go on Friday afternoons. And the logic behind that is that way when they wake up on Saturday, they wouldn't have been going to work anyways. So their their life seems normal until Monday when they realize, oh, hey, I've lost my job. And hopefully that gives them time to calm down. Now, that, that's not to prevent violence. I, I'm not trying to say that every person that gets laid off or fired is, is going to come back and shoot the place up. But it does prevent things like screaming and yelling swear words on your way out the door, flipping over a desk, causing public relations problems, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So this is just like an extreme version of that, right? Mass shootings are an extreme version of that. Just you have a grievance. This is how you deal with it. Absolutely. And it doesn't come out of a vacuum. It doesn't come out of the blue. Uh, 93% of attackers had engaged in threats or concerning communication. In other words, they're making their intentions clear that they want to do something about what their perceived slight or upset was about. People have warning that this person probably could have the potential for um, something really bad to happen. And I think we need to be more sensitive to that kind of communication since so many mass shooters engage in that communication before an attack. We could do a much, much better job in capturing those communications and being aware of them ahead of time 
and then contacting law enforcement to see if this person really has potential for engaging in a mass shooting. Well, that does open kind of an interesting question there as well. Let's say that you get online and you talk about how you hate a whole bunch of people or that you're furious and all of the things that you just said. What does law enforcement do? Arrest you for a thought crime? It does get kind of sticky there, right? Which is another reason that maybe people aren't thinking along this. Because I know that every time I post something on the internet, I I don't want to call from the police asking me what I mean by it. Yeah, the threats aren't generalized. They're not like, hey, I want to shoot up my workplace. They're usually pretty specific, and they're often directed to a specific person at the workplace, at school, at an interpersonal relationship. They'll send threatening emails. I'm going to kill you. I'm going to slit your throat. I want you dead. And that, at that point, that's where I think you need to draw the line and re- report that person to law enforcement because I think they're making a very clear and conscious effort to try to threaten you. And I think that's a fine time for a good intervention. To bring this back to sloppy reporting by the media, why do you think that the media doesn't report on this? We see lots and lots and lots of stories on, you know, mentally ill people. And, but again, you, you've described direct threats, direct access, a plan. Uh, the, the last person literally had a manifesto of everything that he wanted to do, was going to do, and how he was going to do it. And we don't see that played a lot. What we see are guns are good or guns are bad, and it's probably mental illness. But his whole manifesto seems to be lost somewhere. But that was his roadmap, and it was posted before this happened. Yeah, and not everyone has a manifesto, obviously, but they they do give out a lot of signs. And maybe one of the challenges is to help people become more aware of the signs to look for. Most of them don't involve any kind of mental illness. Most of them are things like, hey, this person has a significant stressor. They just lost a job. They just had a significant breakup that seems to be really, really kicking them when they're down. They just lost someone that was really important to them in their life. You look at those kinds of things, those significant stressors, the threats or concerning communications. And then a third thing, unhealthy fixations. So many, 41% of attackers have unhealthy fixations. That's, that's a pretty big group. Um, so if someone is really fixated on an idea or a person, to cause them harm or to try and take out some sort of retribution against that individual or that organization. I think, again, these are all good warning signs that we could all be more aware of and be attuned to. And then if you do find something specific or you do have something of concern, that's what law enforcement's there for. It's their job to figure out, hey, is this person going to uh, be a problem in the future? Let's, let's keep an eye on them. Let's, let's talk to them. I think we have a lot of opportunities to do an intervention before a mass shooting takes place. And unfortunately, we're failing to do those interventions. We're not focused on um, helping people when they're giving us kind of clear signs. We're in denial about those signs. And I think just too many people aren't even aware of the signs. They think, as you said, mental illness is the sign. Mental illness is not the sign. John, what do you think that the media could do better? Well, they could stop turning to sources that obviously have 
some significant issues with the way that they're collecting data. For instance, again, the Mother Jones mass shootings database is something that a lot of people are, are, are citing and turning to as suggesting that 60% of attackers have a mental illness or had signs of a mental illness. And those signs could have been a family member saying something like, oh, we always knew he wasn't right. I mean, that's not a clear cut, you know, proof that the person had mental illness. And so they need to do a better job of citing sources like the National Council's report, like the U.S. Secret Service's report that have actually done the deep research into this issue and have come up with a far less biased sampling and um, methodology that gives us clear indications and characteristics to use to identify mass shooting potential perpetrators. And of course, we'd like them to stop suggesting a diagnosis because nobody can diagnose anybody without seeing them. It, it, it's malpractice. Even you, John, with you know a, a doctorate in this subject, you can't hear about somebody else and determine that they have a mental illness. You must see that person in person, uh, and and you're a you're a specialist. You're you're a trained professional. Yeah, it goes further than that. As a family member, you can't diagnose your family members. As a as a friend, you can't diagnose your friend. The only person who can make a diagnosis is a mental health professional or, or a doctor. These are the people who are trained in diagnosis. And if you don't have that, then that person technically does not have a mental illness. And that's the kind of proof, that's the level of proof that we would expect if we were talking about that most mass shooters had a diagnosis of diabetes or something. We would want that the person actually had diabetes, not just that the uh, family member thought maybe they could maybe have had diabetes. John, I, I really, really like that example because there there is this uh, general idea that anybody can diagnose mental illness because we can all tell when our loved ones are a little off, uh, but there's no general, hey, we can all tell if our loved ones have a, a heart condition or, or like you said, diabetes. So I, I, I wish people would, would start treating mental illness and physical illness exactly the same. It's so important to differentiate and start understanding that hey, I'm in psychological distress, that doesn't necessarily mean I have a mental illness. I might be going through a really rough patch in my life. That could last weeks or even months. But if I don't see a mental health professional and get a diagnosis, then you have no proof that I have a mental illness. What I have is psychological distress. I might have some issues. But whether any of that rises to the level of an actual diagnosis only a professional can make that determination. And we need to hold mental illness and people who use mental illness as some sort of um, scapegoat to the same standard as we would for any physical illness. It's ridiculous that we think that people with mental illness don't have the same challenges and shouldn't deserve the same respect and just appreciation for the challenges that they have to face every day that we would for anyone with a physical illness. John, thank you so much for being on the show. Do you have any final words for our listeners? Yeah, it's through conversations like this where I believe that we can help mainstream media sources better understand that their sloppy reporting is actually contributing to the problem and not helping shed light and insight and understanding into what to do about mass shootings. This is a really serious national problem. Mass shootings remain a pretty rare event but they are happening far more fr frequently than they were 20 or 30 years ago. 
And we need to come to grips with that and start having a better plan than just to suggest it's all problem of mental illness or it's all a problem of this or that. It's not. It's, it's a problem that is complex and we need to report and solve it in the same complex, subtle ways that the problem presents itself. And in problems that have worked historically for our country, for America, cars used to be more dangerous and now they're safer. Not because of one big thing that we did, but because of uh, lots of little things that the data showed. Better cars, better roads, better safety, etc. Yeah, and you can look at any kind of public health or, or crisis or problem and, and how it was addressed. Um Cars were a huge cause of death for, for many, many decades before the federal government required seatbelts. Cigarette smoking didn't end overnight. Cigarette smoking took many, many decades of increasing uh, warnings on the packages, increasing awareness campaigns, where finally we're at the, the point decades later where most people don't smoke anymore. And I think it's the same kind of thing that we need to do with understanding how to decrease the frequency of mass shootings. It's not going to happen overnight, but we have to have a better plan than to scapegoat a minority in our country. John, I could not agree more. Thank you so much for hanging out with me. I, I appreciate it. I, I always love having you on the show. Always a pleasure, Gabe. Thank you. You're very welcome. And listen up, everybody. Please don't forget to review our show on whatever podcast player you found us on and tell a friend. I'd take it as a personal favor. And remember, you can get one week of free, convenient, affordable, private online counseling anytime, anywhere, simply by visiting betterhelp.com slash psychcentral. We'll see everyone next week. You've been listening to the Psych Central Podcast. Previous episodes can be found at psychcentral.com slash show or on your favorite podcast player. To learn more about our host, Gabe Howard, please visit his website at gabehoward.com. Psychcentral.com is the internet's oldest and largest independent mental health website run by mental health professionals. Overseen by Dr. John Grohall, psychcentral.com offers trusted resources and quizzes to help answer your questions about mental health, personality, psychotherapy, and more. Please visit us today at psychcentral.com. If you have feedback about the show, please email show at psychcentral.com. Thank you for listening, and please share widely. There are few words more misunderstood and misused than OCD. Imagine having unwanted thoughts stuck in your head all day, no matter how hard you try to make them go away and then having to pretend that everything is okay despite having to feel crippled inside. That's OCD. 1 in 40 people suffer from it globally, but there's hope. If you have OCD and need help, you can get better with specialized treatment. NoCD offers effective, affordable, and convenient treatment for OCD and is covered by many major insurance plans. Go to NoCD.com to learn more. That's NoCD.com.